Hello and welcome back to another episode of Parsha Lab. I am Imu Shalev. I am David Foreman. And this week's Parsha, or I should say Parshiot, are Tazria Mitzora. Parsha's Tazria Mitzora covers the laws of purification and impurity of a woman who gives birth, of a Mitzora, of someone who contracts saras, of a home that contracts saras of some interesting spiritual sickness or malady called Zav. And those people who become impure, or I should say Tame, since maybe impure is an imprecise definition of that word. Actually, um, so, Imu, if I can just jump in for a quick ahead. second, I'm going to try to lob you a Parsha experiment style question. Uh, for those of you who are not yet absolutely uh, familiar with Parsha experiment, Parsha experiment is again... One of our premier products in Alafeda, a brainchild of Emu. I'd say it's and, the best product. Uh, David Blunt. I think it's the best product Alafeda has ever done. Totally the best product in Alafeda. Hands down. It was an ambitious, epic quest to see the story behind Chamishi Chamshetara and basically to weave together disparate strands to help the reader kind of follow the evolving story, even when there seems to be no story, such as. In Sefer Vayikra, where it just seems to be a whole bunch of laws. What's the underlying story? How do these laws weave together? But be that as it may, here's my question for you. How would you uh, see Tazria and Mitzora being related to each other? Why do you think it, it is that these laws come together? Again, uh, Imu kind of introduced to you that the, the main topics really of these two parshiot are purification rituals for two kinds of people. Uh, a woman who gives birth, that is uh, the idea of Tazria, and then in Mitzora, as well as in much of Parsha Tazria, the laws of leprosy and the laws of Tzara'at. Uh, we hear a great deal about how the person who has Tzara'at, or his home, or his clothes, how all those attain purification too. So aside from the obvious purification connection, is there anything else, some sort of commonality, why these two laws should be grouped together? There's a few ways I can answer that question. There is the way that I wanted to lead this particular episode, which I'm actually going to skip <laughs> since I'm going to stay more localized, since it sounds like you want me to connect those two disparate pieces. There's a second way, which leans on some of the work we did in Parsha Experiment, where we suggested that uh, Tuma, or the best definition of Tuma, is, is some sort of brush with mortality that causes one to focus from a clear spiritual perspective to a, a more muddled one when they confront death. And in some sense, we argue that there's commonality between a mitsora. He's basically, he has some sort of disease that causes him to uh, confront his own mortality. Uh, he dies a, a certain sort of death. There's uh, some pieces you focus on, Rabbi Foreman, that talk about a mitsora as experiencing a communal sort of death. And a woman who gives birth who also has a brush with mortality in the sense that, you know, first of all, giving birth is a very dangerous thing to do, especially, you know, way back before modern medicine. A lot of women would be lost in childbirth. A lot of babies would be lost in childbirth. The whole business is, is quite dangerous. But there's also even a, a spiritual loss, uh, some loss of life where a mother who hosted a life inside of her uh, even though she's doing something very joyful, something very great, giving birth to a new baby, she loses a life that was once in her. 
So those are some dots of commonality. So just to kind of summarize, what you're what seem to be saying is that uh, the notion of impurity seems to be associated with a brush with mortality. Death, uh, a corpse, of course, is the avia votatuma, the great grandfather, the great granddaddy of all tuma that we experience is the tuma of a corpse, and that everything else is somehow derivative of death. That there is, you know, in this world there's life. And of course, there's death and there's this other world. But in this world, you don't focus on that. And when you kind of focus on that and, and respond to death, there's something eerie, spooky, Halloweenish, Tuma-like about that whole experience in this world. And it requires some sort of rejuvenation and purification. So Imu was saying that when it comes to Mitsora, there are death aspects. Uh, there's a kind of living death. And then in some sort of way, a woman has a, a brush with mortality as well in giving birth, not just because it's such a difficult and painful and life-threatening experience, but also because she's losing the life within her. And therefore, there's a kind of mortality. There. That was the second place um, I was going to go. I wasn't going to the third place. And, and you didn't go to the third place, which is a great big mystery. So let me go to a third place, which is really just a deepening of those first two places. First of all, there seems to be an interesting wordplay with Tazriyan and Mitsara, doesn't there? If you think about the prefix for the words, the tough and the mem, that would seem to suggest a kind of subject-object sort of thing. A woman who's Tazria, which is to say who conceives, so that has woman as subject, right? Now, when you have a mem as a prefix, like a Mitsara, right, then you have the idea of person as sort of object as someone who has been acted upon and become a certain way. In this case, he's become tsarua. The mitsara has become afflicted with tsara'at. So you have a sort of subject-object distinction between the woman who is tazria, right, who is a subject, and the object, the person who has acted upon, the recipient of the becoming tsarua. But the really cool thing, Imu, it struck me, is just the wordplay. Think about tazria and think about Mitsora, take out the prefix, the mem and the tough, and look at the similarity there in terms of mm -hmm. the essential letters that remain. Zion, Reish, Ayin, and Tzadi, Reish, Ayin. Right. And if you think about Zion and Tzadi, look how close Zion and Tzadi Z are phonetically. The Z and the Tz, right? All a Tz is in the Tzadi is a, a harsher form of the Z. Uh, all you do is add the harsh T into the Z and you get the Tsadi. And I think, Imu, I don't know if we ever talked about this, but I remember a, a dear colleague or mentor or rabbi of mine growing up was Rabbi Eisman in Baltimore, who used to have a very fancy sounding deal that he called the biconsonantal root theory. Did I ever tell you about the biconsonantal root theory? You did, yeah, indeed. Rabbi Eisman comes up with this theory that the biconsonantal root, that all Hebrew letters, even though they look like they have three-letter roots, really have two-letter roots. Uh, the first two letters of the root give a basic idea, and the third letter somehow differentiates the idea and creates the distinction between them all. But there's a certain fundamental commonality between all words with the first two letters. So, for example... Uh, or so, for example, he has his payresh example. So he shows how it, remarkably, if you look at all the payresh words, they all seem to be derivative of a certain basic idea. Para with an aleph, which means wild. Parad with a dalad, which means to separate. Para, which means to be fruitful. Paraz, which means to scatter. Parats, which means to explode. 
Um, by the way, just even there, you see the difference between paraz, which is softer, with the zayin, which means to scatter, and the paratz form with the tzadi. Only difference is just the tzadi, and all of a sudden, uh, it means to explode, which is just a harsher form of scattering. And his idea is basically peresh is all about one becoming many, but there's many different ways to do it. If I'm wild, so one becomes many. If I separate parad, so one becomes many. So bring that all back to Mitsora. I'm wondering, is there a similar kind of commonality between Ishakita Zria and the Mitsora? In other words, could the woman who's Tazria, right, who conceives and has a child, could she be experiencing a softer form, right, as a subject of something that the Mitsora experiences mm. as an object mm. in harsher form, right? That's the tough becoming the mem, subject becoming the object, and instead of Tazria, Mitsora, it's a harsher form. And Imo, I go back to the, the expression of Tsarat at the end of Balotcha with Miriam. That's where I wanted to the take The sort of you. wrinkle that you get in the meaning of tsarat out of that language with Miriam. You see where I'm going here? Do you remember? Mm-hmm. If, if I remember correctly, Miriam is stricken with tsarat. Mm-hmm. And when uh, Moshe prays to God for her to be healed. Aaron says this to Moshe, pleading with Moshe. Aaron says this. Yeah. So what does Aaron say? He says, uh, don't place upon us a, a sin or a chatat in that we have, you know, we've acted foolishly and we have sinned. And therefore, don't let her be like a, a dead person or a stillborn who has um, emerged from uh, the womb of, of her mother with uh, half of her flesh consumed. so the And it's a gory image, but the notion is that the whiteness uh, that is so characteristic of Tsarat is associated here with the whiteness of a stillborn baby who, you know, God forbid, the baby is stillborn because its flesh was opened up in the womb, causing the blood to drain out, and you just have the white, lifeless skin of the stillborn corpse. And that's how Aaron characterizes Tzarat. And maybe in a larger sense, Tzarat is a kind of death. What kind of living death? It's as if you are stillborn, the way Aaron thinks about it. And now, fascinatingly, think about the connection of Tazaria and Mitzorah. Here you've got this woman, and she gives birth as subject successfully, but experiences a kind of tumor because of the loss of this child that was once a part of her and is now a separate being. And that's a very happy event, but nevertheless, it's this brush with mortality. Mm -hmm. And then there's this harsher version of it, not the Zion version of Ishakita Zria, a woman who conceives, but a Mitsora, someone who experiences this as object, who's being born, but it's a harsh experience of birth. And instead of being born nicely, right, it's a it's a tzadi, right, rather than a Zion. And it's this being born, but being born like a stillborn. And somehow, even though you're still alive, you have this very uh, intense brush with mortality known as tzarat. Just to flesh out a little bit, Aaron's comparison of Miriam with Tsaras to, like, he doesn't compare her to a dead person, right? He, he says, Al-Natahi Kames, don't let her be as one who is dead. He, he kind of gives a specific kind of death, right? A stillborn. 
which is mm-hmm. sort of sort of um, it's an awful awful horrible kind of death, but it's it's a little bit of an in between death, right? This is a birth death, yeah, uh, one who is born and and is dead, which is uh, a person who has saras is experiencing a kind of death where they're neither alive nor dead, mm-hmm. right? And and so it's almost like Parsha Tazri and Mitzorah is taking us to the line of birth and death, two different kinds of birth deaths, right? There's a happy kind of birth death which is any successful birth. If you think about where postpartum depression comes psychologically, it comes through loss. Here is this being that was once a part of me that's no longer part of me, and I'm very happy that there's a separate being, but she or he is separate, right? And there is loss, there's death, there's separation, there's pain. As part of that, even though it's fundamentally a happy event, hence it's a kind of birth death. Birth, but loss, death. And another kind of birth death, not the Tazria, not the woman who experiences birth death as a subject, but someone who experiences it as object in a harsher kind of way, the birth death, as you would put it, of being alive and yet having this stillborn birth, failed birth quality to your existence, which is this overlay of Tzarat that you need to somehow you know, rid yourself of or be purified or be rehabilitated from. So I just think that's kind of fascinating. It just Yeah, no, my, my wheels are turning. That's a really interesting place to take it. Or before me, can I just ask you to, to clarify a little bit? How does this help us understand a little bit of a woman's experience in having lost while she gives birth, right, in that happy occasion? How does understanding the connection to Mitsora sort of help us understand that a little better? So disclaimer, I'm not a woman, so I cannot speak here from personal experience, only vicarious experience and seeing, you know, uh, having gone through childbirth with my own children. And How many times? About seven times. We've got seven of these guys. Um, but yeah, just a sense of loss, right? Which is that if you if you think about the experience of the Tsarua, one of the things that the Mitsura does is the Mitsura kind of experiences a sort of mourning for himself. Normally, when you're dead, uh, you don't get to mourn. Uh, so it's something that my father, al always used to say, is, you know, people think, like, oh, it's so terrible death for mourners because, um, you know, the mourners lost someone they love so much. But think about how bad it is for the guy who dies. The mourners just lost one person. The guy who dies is losing everybody. It's just the guy who dies isn't around to mourn. But if they could mourn, the mourning would be very intense. And 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 here I believe that there's uh, Hatsarua. I'm reading now from verse 45 in Leviticus 13. And Hatsarua asher bo hanega begadav yufrumim veroshoye parua. Where do you have that sort of language? His clothes are going to be torn and his head is going to be uncovered. And this is the language of uh, of mourning. So there's a sense of loss, which the Mitsura is experiencing, some loss within himself. Uh, and then just the idea that there's a sense of loss um, in childbirth. And as wonderful as childbirth is, any time oneness becomes two-ness, there's something sad about that, no matter how happy that is. And, and to some extent, and that kind of oneness is something which we always seek to recapture, right? When the, the, when the Bible talks about marriage, that marriage is a certain kind of Freudian replacement for mother, right, on the part of the man. That's why a man will leave behind his mother and father and cling to his wife. He senses that he came from mother and is seeking that oneness with her, but he can't go back into the womb. To do so would be to die. But that oneness is compelling. It's compelling for a man, and the man's solution of it is ultimately to find 
another oneness that came from him or to reunite with another oneness that came from him, which is woman. Woman was taken from him and therefore he leaves behind mother and father in the language of Genesis and clings to his wife, leaving one unity to come to another. But that unity of mother and child is compelling not just for the child who wants to come back to mother, but for mother who wants to come back to child. And that, I think, is the birth-death quality or the death quality of birth, that's what it is, that no matter how happy this is, there is a kind of loss. The tuma surrounded the impurity that is a function of childbirth is a spiritual reflection of that sense of loss, or as you put it, that brush with mortality. Hmm. There, there's a lot that resonates for me in, in what it is you're saying, and I too am not a, a woman, so uh, so we will... Uh give my resonance whatever credence it deserves. But I, I wonder if the rituals of of Tahara are meant to help one who perceives loss and who perceives oneness going into two-ness to reconnect with oneness to some extent, right? Like the idea of, of Tahara sort of giving you the time and maybe even ritual to remember some sort of elemental oneness, some sort of, you know, we're one with God or or... You definitely feel two when you were one and then you have a kid, one becomes two. Uh, I wonder if the if the Tara rituals are meant to help us contemplate that to some extent, that that, that two-ness is actually an illusion and that we're really all one. That's item A that this makes me think of. And item B that it makes me think of is just a general thinking about parenting in general. It's almost like a parent's job to facilitate good two-ness, right? You're supposed to let go of your kid. You're supposed to have a Shabbos. You're not supposed to continue to control your kid and see them as one. And yet, to some extent, there seems to be some sort of deeper elemental truth, which is that you are one. It feels kind of paradoxical. It, it, and I'd, e I'd even take the paradox even further, and maybe, maybe I shouldn't. Why do you have kids in the first place? You might think, I'm going to be so spiritually pure and not bring two-ness into the world and be one and not have a kid. And yet... There seems to be something good about it too, right? Like that's that's what that's what I find confusing here about tuma. So, sometimes equals bad. I guess the question I'd put to you is: Should you avoid it? What what's it for? What's what's this process of tara for? And yeah. right. So I guess what I'm suggesting is that tuma is not necessarily as strange as it sounds, despite the fact that we think of it with negative connotations, is not always a function of badness. Um, it's something which is neither bad nor good, but a brush with mortality. In other words, if this theory is correct, then it's suggesting that birth death, as you would put it, is a, uh, a phenomenon that we as humans need to respond to spiritually. And we respond to it by recognizing these kind of spiritual states associated with it. There's a certain kind of tuma associated with it. But I'd say the good and the bad comes in the dichotomy between Tazri and Mitzora, right? Which is that there's something celebratory and triumphant about Tazria and something bad and foreboding about Mitzora, right? Which is really the difference between successful birth and stillborn. They both partake of the same notion of birth death. Right? But you can have a, a birth death which is successful and wonderful, which is a successful experience of Tunis, right? which comes with a sense of pain and loss. But in the larger picture of it, the pain and loss is subsidiary 
and is something to be celebrated. And, you know, hopefully you get over the postpartum depression and hopefully you let go of it and you celebrate. And it's almost like, you know, sometimes I say with Alipeta videos that to me, the, the, the richest kind of uh, sort of ending is a, to a video emotionally, and it's true with any movie, is a bittersweet ending. Um, and the bittersweet ending, sometimes the, the the goodness of the ending is magnified, strange as it is, through its bittersweetness. Any kind of wonderfulness, to some extent, partakes of that, that bittersweet sort of birth-death quality, right? Which is, you know, the most romantic movie in the world, as they call it, Casablanca, has that that sense of loss, even as it's a wonderful romantic movie and you root for these characters. And yet at the end, there is a sense of parting, but there is nobility and celebration. And the the sense of loss is subsidiary to that. And the parting, uh, you know, that's Shakespeare. Oh, you know, parting is such sweet sorrow. And that's one kind of birth death. And then there's the other kind of birth death where the bitterness is primary and the sweetness is secondary. Um, and somehow it just feels bitter. And that also is a certain kind of too much to be dealt with. The idea is that loss and death can pervade our experiences and be present in our experiences, even when the experiences are happy ones. And even when fundamentally we're celebrating, but there is still the sense of loss to be reckoned with. And, you know, I think as a parent with you have all these wonderful daughters and then you think to yourself, my goodness, one day I'm going to have to give away these wonderful daughters in marriage. And and on a certain way, you, you imagine what that day would be like and thinking about y- your own marriage and thinking about what that would be to experience your kid getting married. It's, it just feels happier with your kid as a parent. And yet there would be a sense of loss. There'd be wiping away that tear as you walk your kid down to the chuppah that there's some other man that's going to take over the role of man in their life. And and there's loss around that, even as you are celebrating. And I think the Torah's notion of Tuma associated with both Tazri and Mitzorah is almost an act of compassion to the, to the mother and a recognition of what she is going through, that as celebrated as it is, she still has to deal with that aspect of Tuma, with that aspect of loss, that everyone's celebrating. But for her, there is a sense of loss that's part of the reality. And her reality isn't complete without honoring and dealing with that sense of loss, just the same way that the person, you know, there's no Tuma with walking, no halachic Tuma with walking your kid down to the chuppah, but it's also a kind of birth death. And in order to relate to that honestly, you have to be able to experience the the bittersweet aspect of it in order for the sweetness to really be complete. So I, th- I think these are very, very powerful thoughts. What's lingering for me is why? Why do we have these rituals of Toma and Tahara? What are they for? Rabbi Foreman has a theory that, that these these things don't necessarily have or we're not meant to know the full meaning of it. This is These are kind of God rules. We have rules like physics and, and gravity that God keeps so that we can live and we, get, we have to keep the rules uh, when we are around God's mishkan, uh, around his home, um, that, that he, that he uh, uh, requires for us to keep. But I think there might be more to it. Um, and the, the, a giant commercial for Parsha experiment today, I'll encourage those of you who are interested to take a look at what uh, Rabbi David Block and I did. In Parsha experiment, we, we make an attempt at an answer. And I wonder, I actually think a lot of the amazing things that Rabbi Foreman added today 
help us to, to navigate uh, what I think the rituals of Toma and Tara are meant to do for our perspective and for our relationship with God, our relationship with the world at large. So uh, if I may be so um, brazen as to suggest you guys check it out, uh, please do. Uh, thank you everyone for joining us and uh, join us next week.